I'm not sure humans are the most intelligent animal. I'm not sure humans are the most self-aware animal. For, I, I don't think we're the only animal with language. And I think many of the things that seem to result from our decisive or supposedly decisive advantage in intelligence or self-awareness actually result from cumulative cultural evolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Joining me today is the incredible Mac and Murphy. He's an American writer, a science educator, and a creator of the popular weekly podcast Species. Macken is a graduate of Boston University and he completed a dual major in history and biological anthropology in 2020 and was honoured as a student speaker for the 2020 commencement. He then went on to pursue a postgraduate degree in cognitive and evolutionary anthropology at Oxford. During his sophomore year at Boston University, Macken launched Species, a weekly biology podcast about animals, which has gone on to receive praise from Apple and BBC Wildlife magazine. Each episode examines one type of creature at a time, drawing in a large following including younger people. Macken is passionate about education and he has recently been involved in City Year in Providence in Ireland where he helps teach science to 7th graders. He is also the author of a children's book about animal symbiosis titled Animal Sidekicks which was published in April 2022. Macken is a proud vegan with a naturalistic, sentiocentric worldview which I'm excited to dig deeper into in our conversation. We will also explore the scope of his education and his activist work as well as how he successfully makes complex subjects accessible to younger people. This is the PBN Podcast, I'm your host Robbie Lockie and as always if you like this episode please don't forget to comment, like and share and if you're on Apple Podcasts please leave us a review, it really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Macken, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast. Uh, what a pleasure, my friend, and a real treat to sit down with you and hear your story. Hi, Robbie. Great to be with you. I like exceptions. I like animals that make it hard for scientists to make generalizations about animals. I like animals that break the rules. I like sharks that walk on land and poisonous birds. I like bears that eat bamboo and crabs that eat seagulls. I like parrots that can't fly and squid that can. Bagheera, the panther in Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, is an exception among the other animals of the jungle in that book. This panther was raised in captivity amongst humans, and poetically, he himself raises a human, Mowgli, in the jungle. For both Mowgli and Bagheera, their literally exceptional status as animals raised outside their environs is what creates much of their intrigue as characters. So before we get started and talk about all your amazing achievements in recent times, let's go back in time and let's focus on like what brought us together, which was veganism and being vegan. How did you discover the lifestyle and where did that all begin for you? Well, it started with vegetarianism. I stopped eating meat when I was a teenager, um, after having done something really bad, uh, probably probably the worst thing I've ever done. I was on a service trip doing construction work in Thailand. I was very, very lucky to go. But the locals there, after we had made some progress on one of their projects, gifted us a live pig for us to eat. And of course, we had to kill the pig ourselves. And, you know, I remember kind of leaving that event feeling like, that we'd killed somebody rather than killed something. And so from then on, I kind of felt a lot of guilt and um, confusion about eating meat. 
And once I moved out of my parents' home, once I started, you know, cooking my own meals and things like that, I never ate meat again. That was that was it for me. And then, so it was it was very much a personal journey. It wasn't something that happened kind of in conversation with other people. Um, it, I wasn't persuaded into it. And then in college, I actually became vegan after an argument with a vegetarian friend. Um, so my friend, he was a he was a vegetarian, but he was a vegetarian environmentalist, and so he was cutting down on meat. Not for any ethical reasons. I don't think he really cared about animals in any deep sense. But he did care about climate change and its threat to humanity. And so he was trying to reduce his impact by going vegetarian. But he was a little more knowledgeable than me. And he basically said, well, Mackin, you're vegetarian because you care about the welfare of animals and the rights of animals. Uh, So you can't really coherently be eating eggs and milk and things like that. And at first I kind of fought back a little bit because I didn't really understand what he was talking about. But once he showed me the abuses, I was like, oh yeah, sure enough, I actually am being really hypocritical right now. So I was vegetarian for a couple of years. And then in college I became vegan and uh, yeah, kind of never looked back. I mean, it, it took me a while to find my feet. I would say there was about a year there where I was using the word vegan to describe myself, but wasn't like fully vegan in the sense that I understand it now. But now I'd say it's been about five years and, you know, all's well that ends well. I'll be sticking Mm. that forever. Mm. Amazing. Well, what a great story and such a powerful story as well when people talk about taking the life of an animal and experiencing that shift in consciousness, that shift in awareness. I myself experienced the death of an animal that lived next door to me um, and I had a bit of a spiritual moment where I kind of saw the blood of the animal and I saw the animal suffering. I looked into their eyes uh, and I didn't see, you know, an inanimate object. And of course, you know, animals that live with humans, cats and dogs are obviously fortunately for them not seen as inanimate objects, but farmed animals are. They're seen as possessions, as property, as pieces of meat. They're not really seen as full, living, breathing, sentient animals. I'm really interested in this kind of shift. Uh, and some, as someone who's really spent a lot, and we'll talk about your incredible podcast in a bit, but as someone who spent a lot of time around the idea of indivi- animals as individuals, how do you think this shift in, in consciousness occurs? Because, you know, we spend our whole lives consuming animals and seeing them as steaks and burgers and sausages. But then the moment that we see them as an individual with their own intimate emotions and feelings uh, and the ability to suffer, suddenly the desire to consume them disappears. I find that really fascinating. It's not something that's as common as you would expect, because obviously most of the planet continues to eat animals. But why do you think that shift occurs in some people and not others? I think it's a shift made possible ironically, by our distance from animals and by our distance from the process of farming during childhood. So I spent my whole my whole childhood eating meat while ostensibly loving animals. And I never once thought about consuming, like consuming a chicken, let's say, consuming like a rotisserie chicken or something like that. It's like I never made contact with the fact that the chicken I was eating was in every way the same as the chicken that my neighbor had that I might play with, right? I I would never make contact with the idea that, you know, the cute pig that I got to pet at the petting zoo was made of the same stuff as bacon, right? I think that people, we don't see veganism as particularly popular in rural areas, areas where they're constantly farming. So I think that if you grow up with this association intact, then it doesn't surprise you. And so it can't really be the thing that makes the connection, or maybe it's just unlikely to be. But for someone who never made this connection between the animal on my plate and the animal that I wanted good things to happen for, the animal that I had compassion for, 
that connection was able to be made very suddenly and very starkly when I took an, or helped take an animal's life. And to speak a little more on that, I guess the case of me killing an animal was almost a perfect version of a meat eater's thought experiment right? Where like, well, what if the animal was treated so, so nicely? Um, what if the animal was allowed to live for so, so long? What if the animal had so much space? What if, you know, the, the caretakers loved the animal? All this nonsense, right? That This pig was actually kind of an example of that. I mean, they were raised on a farm. They were raised as free range as pigs can be, for one. Um, they were allowed to kind of rut about the village and hang out. Um, they couldn't really run anywhere because we were surrounded by jungles. So they were very much trusted to stay within the boundaries. And, you know, they, they had, I, I'm sure they had some pen to keep them at night or something, but I wasn't really paying much attention to that. I was paying attention to the fact that the pigs were loose and around. The other thing was, is that the pigs were much better kept than any pigs would be in the West. They were more kept like dogs are in the West and more treated in that manner. So this pig was essentially the distillation of what all meat eaters will say to justify them eating meat, right? They'll say, well, if they're humanely kept, if they're raised with tons of space, if they're treated the way we treat our dogs and then they're killed, well, then everything's fine, right? Well, wrong. I mean, I was there and I saw the process and I still felt very strongly like we had done something flagrantly evil, uh, flagrantly wrong. And I don't, I, I don't use those words lightly. I don't usually think of actions in those terms. But where does that come? That's what's so interesting. Where does that right. come from? Where does that knowing come from? Did your parents teach you that? Did your society teach you that? When and why did you as a human being see the, the, the suffering of another animal, not much different? You know, we're different, but we're the same in all the ways that matter from these creatures. In fact, pigs from the neck to the groin, we're very similar. Almost Our organs are almost all identical to pigs, which is kind of creepy. But anyway, we'll get to that. Where does it come from? Where does that kind of compassion come from? I think that, I, uh, as I was saying, is ironically, it comes from our distance from animals. So I spent a childhood being taught to love animals, being taught to, um, you know, help the bird on the side of the road, being taught to care for my dogs, care for my pets, taught to be kind to animals, right? And violence towards animals was, it was treated the same way as child abuse and things like that. It was just like the absolute worst thing you could do or one of the worst things you could do was harm an animal needlessly. And then here I was in Thailand, having never made this connection, and I don't think anyone in my family had either, suddenly realizing all at once that every time I ate an animal, I was actually eating an animal. It sounds stupid, but that is a realization that most people go their whole lives without making, which is that they are actually consuming the flesh of a dead being. And that realization, being able to make that connection, I think it was kind of the, and I, and I don't know if this is accurate, but I think it's kind of a suspension bridge effect where you spend most of your life being taught to love animals in isolation from the process that goes into your food. And then all at once you see what that process is. And one of those things has got to give. You, if you want to be coherent, you either have to let go of your desire to be good to animals, or you have to actually bite the bullet and say, okay, I'm going to stop harming them needlessly every time I sit down for a meal. And I think for most people, though, it, 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 they don't actually care that much about being coherent. And so they just kind of live with it. They're like, oh, yeah, interesting. 
well, I'm just going to let cognitive dissonance do as much work as I can um, and hopefully never think about this again. But that was not me. I definitely went through an unnecessarily long time hemming and hawing about things. But ultimately, I did come around to a place where I genuinely wanted to live in a way that was consistent with my deepest values. And I try to do that, although uh, in veganism, I certainly do. But, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend I'm a perfect person. I'm certainly not. But at least strict veganism is something I can do. Absolutely. There's a, there's a few interesting things that I'd love to pick up on is the cognitive dissonance, the, um, the ability to hold two opposing beliefs in one's mind. And I think for some people that does cause some level of suffering and others, there's just an ambivalence, uh, an ignorance. They prefer to not look at it. I see, I love this, the idea, the visual you gave there of a suspension bridge holding up, propping up these this behavior. And then something comes along and it p- applies pressure to the center of the bridge and then the bridge breaks. And for me, this is when we make the connection. We have the realization that the bacon on our plate is Peppa Pig. <laughs> you know? right. We have yes. that realization that the animals that we love, that we've been taught, that we've been taught are individuals with their own thoughts and minds and dreams and uh, experiences shouldn't experience pain at the hands of human beings because that's just innately wrong. The same reason we don't believe it's right to harm other human beings when we see another human being being hurt or tortured in some way, we feel something. I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, I certainly haven't studied the, the subject, but I'm fascinated by how the brain and how empathy works and how people, as us as human beings, and I've read a little about mirror neurons and how we, when we look at another being suffering, we experience it ourselves. We feel the pain. We feel distraught. What What is it about human beings that make us so different to other animals where we can see the suffering of other animals or other being people and and sort of want to run to their aid because i know you see you do see it and i have seen some examples on social media i don't know how true these are whether this is anthropomorphizing animals is is that the word anthropomorphication (laughs) um whether you see like an elephant rushing to help somebody else or rushing to help a baby I do believe it is in in is in some animals but why are humans seemingly more imbued with this do you think It's an interesting question. Empathy is an internal state that has external behavioral manifestations. So you're looking at things like a viral video of an elephant rushing to help a conspecific, or maybe a a orangutan jumping into the water to save a bird, right? One of those viral clips. And our brains, our kind of anthropomorphizing brain is saying, well, maybe that's reflective of an empathetic internal state. And it's very hard to know because we obviously we can't put someone in a brain scan and tell, you know, whether they experience empathy or not. You mentioned mirror neurons. I'm not a neuroscientist either, but I'm not sure whether those are still in favor as a thing geared towards empathy, because we also activate them, I I believe, when we're just copying someone else's behavior, which which could be just something to help us learn socially. But again, that's that's not really my area. Why empathy evolved in humans is a very interesting question. It's one we could talk about. It's likely due to the benefits that come with cooperation in our species. So obviously, we evolved in relatively small groups where you know you were constantly seeing people who were either closely related to or you would have to interact with again. And so being a good cooperator, being someone who can help others, that's going to come back to you in the end, right? It's kind of a true karma where if I help someone who's, you know, my sister or my brother or my cousin, 
Um, if I help them out, well, I'm actually helping my genes out because they share my genes. If I help someone who's distantly related to me, but living with me, well, I'm going to see them again next Tuesday, right? Not that Tuesdays were invented back then, but I'm going to see them again next Tuesday. That's probably going to come back around to me. So having an empathetic pro-social stance towards the world is helpful. It could also, um, to some extent, have to do with your mate signaling ability. Essentially, someone who... So obviously, animals engage in all sorts of displays to show their worthiness as a mate. And there has been some suggestion in some corners that altruism is, to an extent, another way of expressing that, right? It's like, when a peacock has this enormous tail that's, that, that shows that they can take a massive burden, right? And so that makes them more attractive. It's like, look at me, I can survive despite this massive burden. I must be quite genetically healthy. Um, in humans, empathy and altruism and things like that, that could be one of the functions where it's like, well, look at me, I have the extra money to help out this homeless person on the side of the street. Look at me, I have the extra time to um, go to the dog shelter and volunteer. Look at me, I have the, um, the cognitive desire to go on a podcast and talk about veganism for a couple hours to get other people to hopefully harm less animals. These kind of things, right? It could be to impress potential mates. So those, those are a few ideas here. Um, and all of these, um, certainly the first two um, in hard versions are expressed in other animals as well. Um, so we see, for example, that vampire bats will, um, if, a, if another vampire bat is starving, they will regurgitate blood to give it to the vampire bat who's starving. Now, it's hard to say what's happening emotionally in there. It's probably something like empathy, but who knows? What matters is that the evolutionary force underlying it is likely very similar in the sense that we see that vampire bats who were fed when they were starving are more likely to pay back that debt um, when they see someone else starving. And so all the vampire bats benefit. So it's contagious. Yeah, it's contagious and it's also strategically useful um, in the sense that, well, if everyone sees me starving and then they remember all the times that I fed them when they were on hard times, well, they'll probably pay me back. Your question is, why, did hum why do humans have empathy? Those are a few answers, but I would definitely caution us to be careful about... Uh, I, you did a very good job cautioning us in one direction that people tend to go, which is being like, oh, all animals have empathy. It's like, well... I mean, I haven't seen a grizzly bear express much, much empathy, and, and and that's fine. That doesn't mean they're not worthy of moral consideration. I just don't think um, I don't think that they probably have a lot of it. Maybe for their own children, um, maybe for potential mates, but other than that, I would doubt it. However, an animal like a chimpanzee or some species of parrot, or as I said, vampire bats, they they may well have feelings of empathy. And I would also caution us not to under-ascribe these feelings because evolution only has so many tools it can use to produce behavior, right? There, there's only so many levers it can pull. And in humans, we have an example of it pulling the empathy lever. And it, it seems unlikely to me on its face that out of all the species, out of all the thousands of species of mammals and hundreds of thousands more species on Earth, we would be the only one ever to evolve the capacity to mentalize or imagine what another person is feeling and then inhabit that to an extent. Um, I would say it's very interesting that humans seem to have empathy for non-human animals, right? That's 
interesting because they obviously don't share our DNA for one, um, and they're also never going to pay us back. So, it, so it's 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 a very pure feeling. It could be a misfiring, um, but if it is a misfiring, if it is a misfiring of our evolved urges, it does sound funny. But we see this misfiring in other species. So, so I'll give you an example. Do you mean like a misdirection of our of this desire? Of our evolved urges, yes. So evolution creates this kind of blunt tool, which is, and I'm not, and obviously the evolutionary story underlying why we do things doesn't tell us anything about whether it's good, right? So maybe empathy evolved just so we can impress mates. I don't think that's true, but maybe it did. That doesn't mean that empathy is useless or shallow it's it's this incredible thing that makes the world a whole lot better thank god we have empathy so evolution creates these this blunt tool where it's saying like it's making you feel empathy that and it helps you it helps you because you get paid back it helps you because you are helping people who are your kin let's say right it helps you in these ways it makes you more attractive mate but then the tool is liable to be used in situations where those results aren't actually given. So I'll give you an example in non-humans in case this sounds implausible. We see female predators, right? So, so female predators who are mothers in many cases, let's take a lioness as an example, and you can actually look up videos of this happening. Lionesses have an evolved desire to care for their young. And that obviously is going to stoke up a lot of feelings of gentleness and love and maybe cuteness, like all these feelings, right, that the lioness is experiencing when they're dealing with their own cubs. What we see is that sometimes lionesses will chase down a baby wildebeest or a baby zebra, just chase them down completely, catch them, and then let them go and start licking them and start treating them like they're a baby, right? Now, what's happening there? Probably from the lionesses, perspective emotionally i mean again we don't know what's happening internally but the simplest explanation is that they're running up to these baby animals with all this aggression in their heart and then suddenly they're noticing like oh this kind of looks like a baby and the other instincts are taking over and saying oh i should care for them so i think that it's possible that the reason that humans often have so much empathy for animals is i would say partially there's a social signaling benefit but i would also say that we have these intense strong, uh, robust, evolved desires to help others. And these desires, they evolved to be applied to humans, but now they're kind of instinctively being misapplied. And this isn't me saying they shouldn't be applied, but misapplied to animals. I love it. So fascinating. Yeah. So I would say that that's, that's the most likely explanation for that, I, that I've heard. Um, and again, this is, this is obviously built on the research of other scientists. This, this is not my area. But that, that, that would be my guess as to why humans um, have this. And I would also say that it's those underlying urges partially hijacked by what I was speaking about earlier, where we have this distance from the process of killing animals, right? This great distance that allows us to not think about it and disassociate from it. And then we also have these cultural uh, values of kindness to animals, right? Deep cultural values of being kind to animals. And those two rarely collide. And when they do, they often create vegans. I will also note, though, that that there does seem to be across cultures a kind of guilt around the usage of animals because we do see all these across almost all cultures. We see specific rules on how you're allowed to kill animals and food taboos around animals and all these things that, while not necessarily reflecting guilt, reflect some kind of appreciation and discomfort with the fact that you're killing somebody and not something. And we don't really see that as much with plants. 
Mm, that's so fascinating. Uh, one of the particular areas that kind of alludes to this being a possibility are cats, are domesticated cats. They purr and meow, uh, and and specifically the purr is. A, and I don't know how true this is. I've heard many, many people say this that the purr is the same similar frequency to a baby crying, and that actually, you know, th- it makes sense that this cat, this creature, which has been with us for some nine thousand years, I think has evolved to mimic our human babies. And so it would support the theory that the reason why human beings feel such closeness to animals, and particularly animals that have eyes that are close together, that look cute, that are cuddly, that it's hijacking that internal (laughs) programming, that biological programming uh, to nourish and nurture. But it's such a fascinating subject, and we could probably talk for hours about this because I'm curious about all kinds of things about our behavior. And um, I've loved listening to your podcast where you talk a lot about human behavior. You know, like, why do we love each other? Like, why do we feel connection? Like, why do we form bonds with other beings at all? You know, why do we feel love? This this deeply intoxicating experience. You know, I look at my cat and I absolutely adore her. I love her like she's my child. And when I think about anything happening to her, it fills me with horror. And, and I often ask myself, how is it possible that I could love an animal of a different species so much. And I know that when she dies, I'm going to be absolutely devastated. But I think, you know, this is the beauty, uh, again, when I'd love to talk a bit about sentience in a bit, but let's, let's take a step back, because I want to talk about your amazing podcast, which is, which is, you know, one of the other reasons that we met, and one of the reasons we're talking today, you know, it's, it's the, it's your playground, it's the place that you talk and experience well, communicate your ideas and 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 discuss the thoughts and uh, concepts of uh, behavior and animals. When we explain something scientifically, some people, maybe not you, feel we've stripped it of meaning. I want to say that this is not true. Why you evolved to feel a certain way in most contexts has minimal bearing on the worthiness of the feelings themselves. You already know this in some scenarios. For example, You know the reason you like the taste of fruit is because you are an ape, and apes evolved to adore the taste of fruit because, in our ancestry, the apes who really liked eating fruit were more motivated to forage for it, and therefore less likely to starve. So, fruit-adoring apes survive to reproduce at a higher rate, and now almost everybody quite likes a fruit salad. You already knew that, and yet, This evolutionary knowledge has never affected your enjoyment of an apple. How did this podcast come about and then where did it all start? Yeah, I will I will definitely get to that. I want to jump in really quick though, because you made such a good point about the cats hijacking <laughs> our desire for cuteness. I, again, I will I will go straight on to the podcast, and that, that's a good question as well. Absolutely. Um, but I will say I was literally it's it's kind of serendipitous because I was just on book tour talking about symbiosis um to many children. I remember my publisher, they wanted to talk about the symbiotic relationship humans have with dogs, right? They wanted it to be a mutualistic relationship. They're like, open up with this. This is what my publisher is telling me. They're like, open up with just kind of describing the benefits dogs give us and the benefits humans give dogs. That'll be a good like talking point at the start. And I was like, well, dogs at this point are more parasites than symbiotes, so symbiotes in the mutualistic sense, um, because what what modern dogs are doing and what modern cats are doing as well, as you said quite astutely, is that they're hijacking our desire to care for babies. 
They've evolved to look more like babies, act more like babies. They're these cute, fuzzy, chubby little creatures with the, you know, the neotony where their their eyes are closer together and they have these baby faces. In many cases, we're breeding them specifically to look more like babies. And then what benefits are they giving us? Well, they're activating all these feelings of love that we have, this paternal love, but they're giving us almost nothing. And in the return, we're giving them food, shelter, all these things. So it's it's really from an evolutionary perspective, not a personal perspective. It's a parasitic relationship. And 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 you took us a long way towards um, talking about that. But in any case, um, so my podcast, you wanted to know how I started it? Is that? Yeah. Where did the idea come from? Because um, not most people don't wake up and go, I want to start a podcast and talk about animals in depth. There's so many different podcasts out there. We're, we're swimming in them, but it's a very specific type of conversation that you have. It actually, it's kind of strange. It was born out of a very black depression that I was going through at that time. I was a very fierce amateur boxer. I, I was competing um, very vigorously in amateur boxing for years and years and years. I was obsessed with boxing. I spent all my time doing it. Basically, I would wake up every morning, train, train before night, all that kind of thing. And then eventually in college, it, at first, this seemed to be going quite well, right? I, I, was, the, I was this kind of young teenager um, who was doing quite well. But then later in college, it became clear that this kind of dream of, of being a boxer was quite quixotic and um i was doing better academically than i was boxing even though i wasn't really trying very hard academically and so it became quite clear oh i should i shouldn't be fighting i should be thinking and so protect I quit that protect that brain of yours right, I'm glad exactly you, you, yeah, you didn't right. pursue yes, it. yeah i mean my memory is absolutely atrocious um and, and sometimes i wonder if that's if that's part of it but you know the processing power is still there and so we're we're it's smooth sailing in any case um i was very depressed after quitting boxing i was very very upset and i realized that you know in the same way that many fish have to keep swimming to breathe i had to keep moving in order to just keep my head above water and 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 stay alive here so i decided to fill my time with something extremely time consuming to fill the gap created by boxing and hopefully keep my mind off things and that was species and it was inspired by a lot of different creative ventures casper henderson the writer was a massive inspiration to me dan carlin the podcaster who i've spoken about before um was an incredible inspiration because he's really the guy who did solo podcasting you know i'd also listened to podcasts for a long time so it kind of it kind of made sense for me to just fill my time with this thing and I really just put my head down into it and just started talking about animals and, and, and kind of combined these creative influences, these, these creative giants in my head to create something that I liked, that I loved to make. And I guess one day I just kind of looked up from my computer, having just worked really, really hard on this and realized, oh my gosh, there's tons of people listening and it, it's very well appreciated and and, and that was that was a miraculous thing to discover right and you do it so well i mean how have you kind of attuned yourself to it because you've got such a great speaking voice have you been a public speaker like where do you get your ability to speak the way you do because a lot of people when they speak there's a lot of umming and ahhing and you know you know this and you know that i need to really like uh, <laughs> exercise the phrase you know from my vocabulary but you've got a fantastic speaking voice and and also just your knowledge. I feel like you are you're just filled with so many ideas. You've got this sort of 
genius vibe that comes off you <laughs> like you went from boxing yeah. what was your area of study and how did you get involved in the subject because it's it's so immense i mean you you know that po- the podcast itself is obviously examines you know one creature at a time uh, and looks at a huge draws on a huge amount of knowledge and, and wealth of kind of understanding out there like how why this subject specifically Gosh, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of things. I would say the speaking voice is genetic, unfortunately. Um, the <laughs> ums, ahs, and you knows, it's kind of weird. I mean, I kind of, I don't think you, I don't think you have to get rid of those. Uh, it, uh, that's how people are used to listening to other people speak. The stock speaking advice is to really drill those out, but nobody actually minds hearing them. I, I'm never bothered when I hear someone say, um, or, you know, or, or like, I, I mean, I recognize that I probably say those things less than other people. And maybe, maybe that's been helpful, but in terms of just the, the knowledge base comes from being obsessive. Uh, I read and read and read. I can sink myself into topics that I'm interested in and basically not let them go. And then in terms of why this subject specifically, I always forget who said this quote, and I've, and I've said it on multiple podcasts. It's so upsetting. But I heard it from my history professor, Andrew Robichaud, who was, who was a historian of animals, a very very strange topic, but he was, he, was a, he was a very, very good thinker himself. I remember, though, that he, that he would say this quote. Gosh, I wish I could remember who said it. It was, um, animals are good to think with. That's really what species is, is I'm kind of picking up these animals and I'm thinking with them. Great whites wear a classic piece of ocean camouflage, a white underbelly that they're named for, which obscures their outline against the sky to those beneath them, and a dark gray top coat to make it hard to notice you're looking down at one. Some recent research suggests that their shade of gray actually changes, and some researchers hypothesize that this is for camouflage. It's hard to hide as a 5,000-pound animal, but when you get attacked by a shark, your first realization that you're being attacked is typically part of your body being removed. And though this shark can hide from you, you would have a hard time hiding from the shark. This animal is a remarkably sensitive species. That is to say, their sensory systems are remarkable. This is an animal that could smell a single drop of blood in a standard backyard swimming pool. Their ears are sensitive enough to detect the vibrations created by you moving in the water. And even if you wore perfect camouflage, didn't move, and didn't have the slightest scratch on your skin for them to smell your blood, they could still find you. Because they have an electro-reception sense you don't have that's so sensitive they can detect the electrical current of your heartbeat. Hiding would not be possible. Neither would escape, at least not while staying in the water. I don't want to do this boring thing where I just, you know, read aloud a fact sheet about animals. Oh, thank you for that message. So it's Claude Levi-Strauss. Great. An anthropologist, actually, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, animals are good to think with, as Claude Levi-Strauss put it. And I just love to not just share the facts about an animal, but to actually hit all the topics which my mind associates them with, right? And th- this, is, this is an approach very much inspired by um, the writer Casper Henderson, who, who's done the same thing with animals, but better. I mean, he's, he's incredible. But it's 
picking up an animal and sharing what their life is like and trying to bring that connection in. Just saying the cool facts, the incredible abilities they have and things like that, but then also hitting the kind of cultural connections that we have with them and trying to not just interact with the animal themselves, but interact with the way that humans interact with that animal in kind of a meta way. The word porcupine comes from the middle French pork de spine, which is thorny pig. And I think that name is quite appropriate. This animal looks like you turned a pig into a pincushion, but I think thorny beaver would be even better. Today's animal is a rodent. At up to nearly three feet long and 30 pounds, the second biggest rodent in North America, after the creature we just mentioned. And so they have that classic guinea pig-like face and front teeth we see in all large rodents. Furthermore, their teeth have the same reddish-orange tint as beavers, because they both have one of the coolest adaptations in nature, iron, in their enamel. Teeth like swords. In the beaver's case, this is so they can cut down trees. In the North American porcupine's case, this is so they can cut up trees. While this herbivorous creature enjoys a wide variety of vegetation across their expansive northern U.S. and Canadian range, in many places, bark and twigs are primary food sources. And for this task, big iron-laced teeth are ideal, giving them their beaverish appearance. This species is absolutely covered in spines. Everywhere it could be reasonable to put a spine, evolution put one on this animal. And the frosted white tips they have, meant as a warning coloration, give this creature a real 90s boy band look. Many of their spines, indeed most of the ones you can see, are false. They're just long white hairs meant to frighten off predators. The true quills, the ones you really have to worry about, are mostly concealed in their dense black fur. A further deterrent is that they absolutely stink. You have to understand, this animal isn't trying to hide from predators. They want them to know exactly where they are and to steer clear of them. God, I, I mean, I really do have so many influences in this space that I just want to list names, but um, it, it's certainly not... It's not a unique approach, um, but it's something that comes very naturally to me and that I, I, for years and years and years, I found so fun. Now I've been doing it for too long, but. <laughs> That's amazing. There's so many animals that you've spoken on. Have you got any favorites? And what are some of the most remarkable things that you've learned about animals? God, I mean, that, uh, that again is something that I could talk about all day. I tend to like the animals that are clever. I tend to like the ones that are doing something complicated, something deceptively complicated. I also like the animals that have quite a bit of personality that shines through. And, I, and so I've always been, for this reason, interested in parrots. Parrots are, and I've spoken about multiple species on my show, Parrots are almost like a distant sister species to humans. They're not closely related to us, but the things that they have in common with us are, are, are nothing short of remarkable. These animals dance to rhythm. Some species, such as the goliath cockatoo, um, will build actually drum sets. They'll, they'll create drumsticks and beat them and sing. So they're creating complex music. They use tools um, of, of various sorts. They engage in 
these long-term pair bonds that are very similar to human marriage. They beautify themselves. They speak to each other. Um, Parrots, I mean, we joke that they are just mimics. That is how they appear in our culture. But but this is to make a mockery of how much understanding there is. I mean, I remember I had a pet parrot who um, would say goodnight to himself if you woke up in the middle of the night and was about to go back to sleep. These animals are extremely smart and they often use language correctly. Uh, I would encourage anyone to look at the research on African gray parrots by Irene Pepperberg. So so I guess that's kind of the constellation of animals that, that I find most interesting. But I, I, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, by what animals can do because, I mean, people are, are embarrassingly interested in aliens and made-up monsters from movies and, and things that just, uh, they're either not real or we don't have anything to know about them anyway, even if they are. We just don't know nothing. And then meanwhile, we're turning a blind eye to the animals that surround us that are absolutely nothing short of fascinating. And this, is, this isn't just the exotic animals like parrots. I mean, pigeons are these strange little creatures who we can take hundreds of miles from their home and let them go. We can blindfold them, put them in a truck, kidnap them, take them hundreds of miles away, release them, and they'll find their way back home. And we don't even know how they're doing it. There are many hypotheses. There are many hypotheses. And some of them have been tested enough so that that perhaps they're true. But we don't know. And then we walk past pigeons on the sidewalk like, like they're the idiots when we're the ones who are ignoring them. I mean, a, a team of pigeons can outperform um, many radiologists. So pigeons have incredible vision. And if you train them on, on basically cancer screening samples, they can be taught to correctly identify as a cohort which are cancer positive and which are clear, right? And they can do this at a higher success rate than many radiologists. I mean, I mean these, these are cognitively complex animals that we don't have full understanding of. And yet we're just walking past them on the sidewalk. And part of my mission with species was to make people pay attention when they see other animals and appreciate and make contact with the fact that we are surrounded by these extremely complex alien life forms, essentially. Mm, I think it's fascinating. I was just having a conversation in our previous podcast with Matthew Shribman of Aim High Earth, and we were talking about AI, and we're talking about what is intelligence, what is sentience, what is consciousness, what separates us from other animals on this planet, and why is it that we seem to have the power over language and are able to really, in many ways, manipulate matter like other animals can't. But we're so busy searching for intelligence in our machines forgetting that sentience and consciousness and advanced awareness is all around us. And the, and the tragedy is that we're losing so much of it, like less than 4% of the biomass on our planet today are wild animals, and that the earth is predominantly humans, cows, chickens, and pigs. And even those animals are beautifully intelligent and smart and self-aware. But I mean, very simply, like, what is the difference between us and, say, a pig? You know, the level of awareness and sentience and self-awareness. Is it just language? Like, what, what is it about us that when we look in the mirror, we have this can have a relationship with what we see in a very different way to what a pig might? A pig might see themselves in a mirror, be aware that it's themselves, but there's something else there. What is, what is it? I'm not sure that there... I'm not, I'm not convinced that there is something there. It's interesting. My, on, on the point of language, my advisor at Boston University, Matthew Cartmill, who is a primatologist, he had a great quote. He said that linguists change the definition of language every time we discover more language in other species, essentially. And I'm paraphrasing there. And that's true. 
I mean, we see that whales are communicating with each other verbally. Um, Parrots, as I mentioned, they're communicating with each other verbally in quite complex ways. And we can say, well, our language is written, but not in all cultures. There, there, there are many cultures and most cultures throughout history did not have written language. It was just, it was just spoken word. And while parrots can translate many words of English and, and, and other languages and, and understand them and use them, we humans have not managed to speak a single word of any parrot language, right? On the point of whether we're the most intelligent animal, it's hard to say what the evidence for that is. I, I believe that we have these cultural reiterations and cultural building, right? And I recognize that a lot of people listening are just going to think that I'm an idiot, that there's something wrong with my intelligence, because I don't think that humans are necessarily, in terms of raw computing power, the smartest animal on earth, right? I recognize that I probably look like an idiot to many of you, but to defend this point for a second and to just kind of open our minds to the idea that maybe we're not the smartest animal in the room in terms of raw computing power, in terms of raw intelligence, we don't have the biggest brains, right? We don't have the biggest brains. We don't have the brain with the most number of neurons, right? We don't have the biggest brain to body ratio. Ants have a bigger brain to body ratio than us. In fact, the only way that humans are measured to have the biggest brains, and the brain is what's doing the computing, the only way that we're measured to have the most powerful computer so far is by things like the encephalization quotient, where you like uh, you you take the body mass and divide it by this and square that and yada 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 until voila we're the biggest. But it's but it's an ex post facto thing where we've designed an equation to spit ourselves back out as the most intelligent animal. So I'm I'm, I'm not sure that we are the most intelligent. An individual human can be surpassed on many cognitive tasks, as Franz Duval liked to say. We're the ones who are defining what intelligence is. So let's take, let's use one of Franz Duval's thought experiments where if you asked a, and Franz Duval is a primatologist for anyone who doesn't know, if you asked a squirrel to design an intelligence test, they would say, okay, well, hide as many things as you can, and then we'll give you three months off and see if you can remember the locations to them, right? Because that's what squirrels do with their intelligence. They hide thousands of nuts everywhere, and then they take a few months off, and then they find them again later. And it's very complicated. That's that's a cognitively complex thing to do. I had trouble remembering where my keys were this morning, right? That's one object, <laughs> right? Every day, I'm scrambling to find my wallet, phone, and keys. I've got, I've got a reminder to tell myself, like, where's your, where's your wallet? Where's your keys? Just to keep track of these things. So if a squirrel designed, and this is Franz Duval's experiment, if a squirrel designed an intelligence test, humans would look like idiots on it. So we're the ones who define intelligence. We're the ones who define that we have the biggest brains. We're the ones who define ourselves as the smartest. There's actually not that much evidence that we are. I will admit that we have very sophisticated technology, but that doesn't come from individual intelligence. I, as an individual human, and this is true for everybody listening, I, as or almost everybody, I would hope, I, as an individual human, am not smart enough to know how to build this microphone. Right. This this is this is hundreds of years of multiple intelligences building upon each other, cultural ratcheting, tiny little modifications to build this. Not one human. It's collective intelligence. I'm not even smart enough to figure out how to make this mug as an individual. So the idea that we're particularly smart as individuals, it's not necessarily true. And humans fail when put head to head in cognitive tests with other species. A squirrel would beat us on a memory test, right? In terms of a short-term rapid recollection and organization task, um, there, there are some apes that can beat us and primates as well. So, so on individual experiments, on individual things with no cultural background, where it's human versus one human versus one human on a novel task, we're not necessarily the ones with the most computing power. In terms of self-awareness, again, 
self-awareness is an internal state. I'm not sure that we as humans are even that self-aware compared to other animals. I'm not even sure how complex that is as a trait. We see that there are species of fish, fish such as the manta ray. Fish, fish undeniably have simpler brains than most other organisms. We have cases where manta rays are in the mirror blowing bubbles and turning on their side and flapping their wings, right, to see what they look like at different angles. It is very hard to describe that behavior in a world where manta rays are not self-aware, right? It's hard to, maybe they're not self-aware and there's some explanation for that behavior, but it's very hard to describe it coherently and efficiently without just saying, okay, well, maybe they're self-aware too. Now, in terms of us being the most self-aware, I don't even necessarily know what that would mean. And I mean, there are animals like orcas have an emotional processing center. Uh, uh, the emotional part of their brain is much larger than it is in humans, and it's overdeveloped, just proportionately larger as well. So there are other animals that could be having much more intense emotional ranges of experience and much more complicated ones, maybe even feeling emotions that we humans don't have access to, although I'd be surprised. I guess my I, I, it's going to sound like I'm prevaricating here, but I'm not sure humans are the most intelligent animal. I'm not sure humans are the most self-aware animal. For, I, I don't think we're the only animal with language. And I think many of the things that seem to result from our decisive or supposedly decisive advantage in intelligence or self-awareness actually result from cumulative cultural evolution, um, which is something that the, um, the great Joe Henrik uh, speaks about quite often. I've had him on my podcast, so that's, that's definitely an episode to listen to if you want to learn about that. But for the record, we're also not the only animals that have cumulative cultural evolution. Um, that's seen in other animals, so it, it's it's not like that's particularly unique either. But that would be right. It's, it's it's fascinating. I think the the key thing here is that as a species, we've become fragrantly arrogant in our self belief, right? That we are the most important creature on this planet, and I think this is what's led us to the path we are on today, where our species and and I'm sure you might agree with this that human beings, Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens sapiens, we have evolved currently to become an invasive parasitic species on our planet. Uh, the nature of what we are and how we evolve and how we function, we are, no, we are not living in a symbiotic relationship with our environment. Ironically, you would think if we were this super intelligent being, we would, we would figure out that what we're doing is completely destroying our home. And that's the irony. But I think, you know, for me, the, the idea is, I think, that the secret weapon that humans have against other animals, and I think for the most part, it is a weapon because it's highly destructive. It's our ability to self-organize in ways that I think many um, non-human animals can't en masse. And I think our language has something to do with it. It's obviously the way that we're able to, you know, build, I mean, and many non-human animals have of course, you can attest you can build things, but I think it's the sheer magnitude in which we can, the scale of what we create as human beings. And I think, you know, it's certainly not positive. Obviously, we've got music and we've got culture and we've got poetry and we've got writing, all these beautiful things that we can do that, you know, some animals, as you say, arguably can do, create music. It's the destructive nature of human beings that is so fascinating. And I'd love to hear what you think of that. Like us as a, as a parasitic species, could we be labeled as a parasitic species? And maybe through the awareness that we have become parasitic, could we change our behavior and become a more harmonious, a more symbiotic uh, race of beings? Interesting. I mean, using it, using the term in the way that you're using it, I think that we we are a drain on the earth to some extent, but we also are just another species of animal. 
and animals outcompete other animals for space all the time. They do this to each other and have for time immemorial. I guess one thing that I would add to it is that is that it's. Uh, I think that what you've said is well said, and I, and I don't want to kind of pollute your point by just reiterating it. But I do remember that I was I was when I was a student at Oxford, I, I got into a debate about um, human successfulness. Right, I was I was speaking to someone who was very much a. And I, I don't even mean this in a, in a necessarily horrible way, but very much, you know, like a human supremacist, let's say, like thinking humans <laughs> are the best, right? His point was that, well, we humans are clearly the best because we've colonized the whole globe. So spatially, spatially, we are the most successful animal ever. I disagreed with this. Orcas have a larger range than humans actually because they live in the ocean in many many places and we live on land and there's less land than ocean so in terms of surface area covered orcas have a speed but even accepting his point that's spatial dominance what about temporal dominance who listening honestly thinks that the human species is going to last another hundred thousand years right very few another three hundred thousand <laughs> years four hundred thousand years a million years. Are humans going to live another million years? I'd say that probably half the people listening are skeptical that humans will make it another thousand years. Most animals, most species live for millions of years before they are extinct. Millions. Okay. I mean, it depends on your definition of human, but humans, uh, basically few hundred thousand years on earth so far. So if we wipe ourselves, if even if we manage to to last another three hundred thousand years, which I mean that would be very impressive, we're still temporally one of the biggest failures in the history of the animal kingdom. One of the biggest failures of evolution. Yeah, one of evolution's biggest missteps. In la- because we're because in terms of temporal space, um, we're not taking up very much, and part of that ha- will I mean we'll see what happens. But it's going to be our avarice, our greed, our um, and our own technological progress. Mm. Our, our intelligence. Yes, our intelligence, right? Yeah, uh, congratulations, you're a genius. You invented the atom bomb. Best idea ever. Goodbye. The, yes, the atom bomb and the combustion engine and all these things. Excellent ideas. Large-scale animal agriculture. Fantastic idea. Whoops, you're going extinct. You, we'll you are the... I mean, look, fingers crossed. I'm not I'm not anti-human. I obviously want things to last for a long time. I'm a human, right? I'd, I'd be very happy for extinction never to happen. But I don't think that our species is going to even reach the average of how long species last. Mm, absolutely. As someone famously once said, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> right. So moving on to like where your work reaches, um, you have a you know huge mass appeal, but particularly around around younger audiences. Why is it do you think that what you're doing is tapping into the minds of much much younger humans? Why are they loving what you're doing so much? I have no idea what's happening there. Truly, I started the podcast Species, aiming it at adults, um, and a lot of adults listen. Right? I, I definitely talk. I mean, I have. I, I mean, geez, I have podcasts that are entirely multiple podcasts on like human mating behavior and stuff that it's it's you know very and and other very dark topics podcasts on on things like capital punishment with anthropologists that really i doubt are what's bringing children to my work so there's definitely a an an adult audience it's probably mostly adult but you're right that species has been a hit with kids 
I just did a book tour where with a children's book that I uh, through a deal that I got through my species audience really. And you know, like there were it was basically sold out at every stop um in England and it was all children. And then you know, I did I did a live event um a couple of years back I think where you know, I was expecting the audience to be mostly adults. So then during the Q&A, it's like all kids wanting to ask me questions. Right. I right. have no, I mean, I think that kids love animals, kids love animals, kids love animals. And, um, and kids also don't like to be babied as much as we think. That's my hunch. I remember the comedian Ricky Gervais, when he was working on the Muppets, he basically said like, Hey, I just aim at adults with my jokes and then hopefully the kids get hit by accident. Right. Um, (laughs) And what's weird is that that kind of happens with facts as well. I mean, let me think of an example. So I remember I was talking about on on my, on my um, tour last week, I was in, um, I can't remember if this was in Ramsgate or London. I think it was in London. And this kid, I was explaining cleaner fish. Right. So cleaner fish are animals that clean the insides of the mouths of other fish. Right. So more eels will come along with their open mouths and the cleaner fish will clean the inside of their mouth. And the more eel won't eat the cleaner fish um, because they want their teeth cleaned. And then the cleaner fish will clean the insides of the more eels mouth because they want food. So that, that's that explained. Now I can say the example. The kid, even though I'd explain this in very technical terms, like I just said it the way I would say it to you. The kid was like, well, how did this relationship start? They said, how, they said, why did the, I'll say it the way they said it. They said, why did the first fish clean the moray eel's mouth and how small are their brains? Now that sounds like a dumb question, but I immediately realized that he was asking, how is it possible that a relationship like this gets off the ground? Because surely it's a dumb move for a fish to swim inside a predator's mouth, right? And that's actually... That's a high level biological question. That's something you can investigate. That's something that I don't know the answer to. That's that's something that needs to be studied. But what it taught me, and, and this has happened multiple times, is that even though he didn't have the language to display his internal processing, he was doing the processing. He was interpreting and understanding what I was saying. So that that would be that would be kind of what I would say about that is that. Two things, kids love animals. That's number one, probably the most important thing. Two, kids understand a lot more than they let on or that they can let on. You can talk to kids in a very sophisticated way and they'll get it. And then the other point is that um, that I would just throw in is that I think that species has become something that parents like to listen to with their kids because I deliberately make it family friendly for the vast majority of episodes. Not, I can't help it when I'm talking to some experts. It's just not going to happen. But on most of my monologue episodes, I, I try to make it family friendly. And so it's a great thing for parents to listen to when they bring their kids to school. And so it's like a family activity. And I think that's probably what happened. I don't know. I know that the audience is probably mostly adult, but you're right. Obviously, it's it's become very popular with children. I don't really know what to make of it, but mm. it's fun. It's it's fascinating and and fantastic. I've seen a couple of videos of you reading to children, talking and uh, sharing your stories. What do you love most about sharing the lives of animals with children? I like how smart they are. I, I like um, it's cool um, because they kind of spend their whole day. You know, children are. I remember what it was like to be a kid. I remember being in fifth, sixth grade and thinking 
about adults I mean, and maybe this is kind of a silly thing to reveal but i remember you know being in like fifth sixth grade and thinking about many of many adults around me like oh this person's an idiot they're, and they're just not they're not understanding me right and being very frustrated with the fact that i felt like i fully understood them and they were struggling to understand what i was trying to communicate it's great for me to be involved with something where i am kind of giving kids the intellectual respect that um that many of them i think are frustrated they don't have so when i'm you know doing a doing a tour or i'm doing a live event or even when i'm you know when i get an email from a family and and i have to write something back to to them or whatever i'm always trying to give them credit and then and not be patronizing when i'm explaining something complicated because because usually they are getting it especially if they're the type of kid who's um you know going to be precocious enough to want to listen to a podcast about animals or whatever Mm. yeah fascinating children of all ages are fascinating aren't they because you kind of as you say you start to realize just how smart young humans can be and i think there's a sort of a disregard for the intelligence of you know ironically talking about the intelligence of humans it's much more complex than we like to put on and and i think again you know i hope we can find us ourselves a time in the future where humans and non-human animals are seen for the beautiful intelligence that they possess and people don't patronize humans or non-human animals for for their intelligence or, or lack thereof, depending on who they are and where they are. But um, on on the topic of veganism, which you know what brought us together, you you do touch on and mention veganism in your podcast. Like, how much do you discuss it, and do you ever discuss the ethics of veganism and 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 veganism being a sort of as far as morality goes, superior, because it would make sense that considering all the positive effects um, you would get personally and environmentally from being vegan, it would be good for our species. But why does it feel like an uphill battle trying to communicate this stuff to our species? Because it, it feels like, you know, getting blood out of a stone. But, you know, firstly, obviously, how, how, do, you, how do you discuss it on your podcast? Well, I've done tons of activism over the years. I was a street activist for years. I was a writer for a vegan magazine for about a year um, and then did vegan publications in op-eds and things like that for a little more. And then I was impossible to talk to because every, every time I spoke to someone, I would bring up veganism. But weirdly, nothing that I've done, as far as I know, has made more vegans than my podcast. You know, I like to say that if you learn about animals, you'll love them. And if you love them, you're not going to want to hurt them. And I think that's happened to many people. I know that's happened to many people who've listened to my show. I do talk about veganism on my show. I have had on multiple vegan guests. I mean, I, I had on Ingrid Newkirk. I mean, I like uh, that's president of PETA, so founder of PETA as well, I believe. I, I've had on John Oberg, who we met through, of course. Um, so I've definitely on occasion brought on a vegan and spoken about basically nothing but veganism for a couple hours. We are definitely on the right trajectory and the amount of progress that has been made in just the 10 years that I've been vegan has been um, astronomical. And so to see this growth, just building upon growth is, uh, is a very exciting thing to be part of. And why is it, John, that they shouldn't wait for lab-grown meat? Well, why, because that, that's another thing that I hear a lot is, oh, I agree with you on every argument. Um, every, everything clearly is either a non sequitur or um, fallacious for one reason or another. But it's too unappealing for me. Uh, I simply don't have the willpower. Why should they start now? Why should you start being vegan as soon as this podcast ends? Well, a vegan world is inevitable, but the speed of which we get there is dependent on our choices now. And our choices now are going to lead to 
a better world or a worse world for animals. And our choices now are going to make a real world impact for dozens of animals every single year. And if you oppose animal cruelty, which I can almost guarantee you do if you're listening to this podcast, then you should understand that your choices right now, today, as a consumer, are going to make a real difference for animals. And so those choices can be a good thing for animals or a bad thing for animals. And then I've also kind of snuck in in various episodes, kind of my, I I don't make a secret of my opinion. It's not a secret that I'm vegan, but for the most part, I really haven't, I really haven't done a hard sell. Like it's, it's, it's not like I'm like, I mean, for the most part, I'm just kind of talking about the animals and occasionally slipping my opinion in it. And then you know, I get emails basically every week saying like, Hey, I'm vegan. I went vegan because of your show or your show helped me go vegan or yada, yada, yada. Or I sent it to my dad and he's now vegan, blah, 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 blah. I mean, my show is thinking with animals. And so when listening to it, you're kind of forced to think about them. And if you're thinking about them while you're eating one, well, (laughs) it's also kind of, it's also going to be attracting the perfect demographic because it's going to be people who already like animals. They're already interested in animals. So they're going to be the most susceptible to vegan ideas and things like that. But again, I haven't used it um, for the most part, I haven't thought about it as a conversion tool or something, um, but that has it has done a lot of work. Yeah, it has. On the on the question about moral superiority, do you feel that veganism can be seen as a as morally superior to what is a, a primarily a carnistic culture that teaches us that eating animals and killing animals is normal, natural, and necessary? Yes, I'll say that I am very close to being a nihilist. I I barely believe anything, but I can't think if anything is wrong, if anything is wrong, surely torturing and killing an animal so you can eat their body or wear their skin or make sure that your shampoo works, surely that's wrong. Not doing that, I guess you could say, I mean, I don't, I fully understand that the reason I'm vegan is because my genes and my environment collided in a way to make me vegan. So I I definitely don't think, I mean, using the word superior, it's like, I don't think that I'm better than anybody because I'm vegan. I think that it's a happy accident that I'm vegan. I, I happen to be the type of person who's susceptible to it. And then I happened to have the type of experiences that made me engage in it. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's, I can't think of a coherent ethical code where torturing and killing another animal to use them or use their body is good. I, I, I don't even know what right. that, I don't even know what that would look like. It seems insane. <laughs> it just makes sure. sense. It make it just makes sense when you think about it. And we often talk about making the connection. We make a connection because we have a realization that our beliefs and our actions are not aligned. And so we bring our beliefs and our actions into alignment and it brings a, a shift in consciousness, a shift in awareness. Right. When we look at a steak on a plate, we no longer see an object. We see an individual. We see a life. We see a family. We see emotion. We see sentience and feelings we see blood you know what i mean so the whole picture the whole awareness conscious awareness completely shifts i'm interested to know or or if you believe that we will ever shift our species because currently our species is predominantly meat eating we're we're a predominantly flesh eating 
ape, aren't we? Our species is probably flesh eating. Do you think we'll ever see a, a time where, and if we could fa- say we just forget about all the destructive nature of humanity, if we could fast forward to many, many sort of thousands of years in the future, do you think that humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, might diverge, and one species is is herbivorous, and another species is carnivorous, and the teeth might change? And do you think yeah. we would ever? No. Ch- become two different species well uh, so there's two questions would we would would our species become vegan convert to veganism and or will humans convert to veganism and could that lead to bifurcation so in order for two species to arise now species we can talk about what a species is it's really just a useful scientific construct Lay people tend to think of species as these like scientific facts that like definitely exist out in the world, but not really. I mean, Kevin DeCuro has called a species a separately evolving metapopulation lineage. I think that I think that's a good definition. I think that works. It's useful. Most people, lay people, um, but what 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 is what is a separately evolving metapopulation? Are you saying what would need to happen for our species to? Diverge. diverge. Yeah, to yeah. diverge. Yeah. So what would need to happen? So I'll just speak briefly on what a species is. So it, it's, a, it's a scientific construct that we use when we want to denote that something is evolving separately. Do I think that there'll be a bifurcation in the human species? No, because what would need to happen is reproductive isolation as a prior to that. And it would need to be reproductive isolation for a very long time. Speciation, the process of creating a new species, can happen when one species is isolated, one patch of a species is isolated from the other, or somehow they've mutated in a way that reproduction with the other group um, becomes either impossible or the environment changes such that it becomes impracticable. So in some cases, two species have diverged for just countless years, and yet they can still they can still reproduce. Like grizzly bears and polar bears can still reproduce with each other, um, and it's fine. Bison and cattle very different animals american bison like like think about the way they look and cows dairy cows they can they can reproduce it's fine uh, but they're still different species so it takes a very long time in some cases for bifurcation to happen and and i you know i had a biology professor when i was at boston university i had a biology professor who was pretty ardent that i don't think this is necessarily true but pretty ardent that like if you tried to breed a human and a chimpanzee we could probably still make young with them like the genetic differences it's only been five million years the genetic differences aren't that much so in order for there to be a herbivorous subspecies of human or a herbivorous species of human what we would need to see is we would need to see reproductive isolation and that's not gonna happen where we've got so much gene flow how did we end up because obviously we are on the on the tree of life we are uh, apes and we diverged from the ape family and, and we look at our closest cousins they are predominantly herbivorous creatures and they act and behave and perform in certain ways with a lot of similarities but we uh, diverged and built these complex societies and ended up becoming flesh-eating ape creatures. What happened there? Like, why did we suddenly separate from them? Yeah, happy to talk about that. I'll just quickly say, I don't think that humans are going to be all vegan anytime soon. I think it's possible (laughs) that the Western vegan movement will be successful and we'll see like a mostly American, a mostly vegan um, America or a mostly vegan Britain or something like that, that that's feasible. And then maybe there'll be some legislative change where it's like where eating meat becomes like smoking cigarettes, right? You can only do it outside. And, you know, there are some towns where you're not allowed to do it at all, that kind of thing. That's possible. But I I don't see a world where, at least on the near horizon, where the entire, I mean, our species is huge. And I would say that most humans on earth don't even know what the word vegan means. You know, this is, we're talking about like within within our kind of um, superculture of um, the West, 
maybe. And then there are other kind of meat reduction movements happening in like, like in China, for example, they want to reduce meat intake by 50% by 2050, something like that. But that's totally separate from the ethical thing. They're thinking about environmental concerns and energy use concerns there. It's just a different thing. So I don't know where the movement is going. I would almost need to be like a super historian to understand like what the potential trajectory is here. I do actually, I have a degree in history, but I, I know nothing about the history of, of this stuff. This is not, this is not my area. So I don't, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what's going to happen, but that that's number one. And then you wanted to talk about how our species diverged, which is very interesting. That's something that um, I can talk about. And it's a long story, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it short. And how we became meat eaters specifically. That's that's what you wanted to know about. Yeah, how did we because obviously we are well cousins, is it the chimpanzees or the orangutans, yeah. the closest cousins? Yes. Uh chimpanzees and bonobos, yes. Right. How did we diverge from them? When was you know with you talked about the very first fish that swam into the mouth of the what mo- mo- was it the yes. Monterey? Because yeah, this is what's yeah. so fascinating about evolution. Obviously, it's very slow kind of rhythmic change over, over many, many millennia. But like you know, we talk about like butterflies that have these eyes on their wings that make them look like animals. It's it's almost and I don't know if you're familiar and you probably, I don't know what your feelings are, but but have you heard you know who heard of Rupert Sheldrake? Professor Rupert Sheldrake has um, a, sp- a talk which was actually removed from the TED Talk platform, and his philosophy is called morphic resonance. I don't know if you've ever come across this. I haven't, and, unfortunately. And, and so it's a, it, we're going to uh, stay with me. We'll get a bit esoteric here and <laughs> we'll see what you That's make fine. of it as a, as a scientist, as a scientific mind. His idea is that uh, DNA uh, as, a, as a sort of a molecule is a, re- a receiver and a transmitter of information and that there is a sort of intelligence that is in the cosmos, as it were, and that the shape and form of creatures is pulled into reality using DNA and that actually as all these different creatures coalesce and as time passes, the shape and form of creatures, which is obviously influenced by their environment, the DNA, it adapts and it evolves in that space. So when a creature, its environment changes enough, the creature begins to physically change and over time evolve into something completely different. But as you said, it's so fascinating that for that to happen, a creature has to be as you say, isolated within itself. It can't be mixing and interbreeding with other species. It has to be somewhat isolated. But on the scientific view, like, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of concept? I think we have a very clear idea at this point of how evolution works in simple strokes. The things I heard there that I agree with are things that I think are dressed up basic facts, if that makes sense. Like, yes, DNA creates animals. Yeah, it creates animals. Yes, I mean, I, I guess I would. I guess I would have to listen to the talk to to kind of give it a give it a fair shake. I, I get. Let me make the question more pointed. It's more like the, there seems to be some kind of intelligence behind the scenes with evolution. Oh, oh and, no, and, no, no, no. and 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 it's sort of like how is it that these creatures are able? How is it that the species are able to evolve these adaptations that seem so? thoughtful and so kind of planned it's just yeah 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 okay, do you know what I mean? well, th- yeah i do i do now i understand what you're saying it's an illusion okay evolution is not that smart okay it's very it's incredible what evolution can do but why do i have an appendix why do i have back problems right you've basically taken i, I can't remember who said this but you've taken a clothesline and turned it into a um flagpole with the human back right and now all of us have sore backs it seems 
there, there, there's, there's so many instances where evolution has imperfectly designed animals and the background extinction rate is high enough that we just see failed experiment after failed experiment after failed experiment. So you're saying it's luck. It's definitely <laughs> luck. It's definitely <laughs> luck. And we can talk about how luck led us to be diverged from from other hominid but but it but it's luck within it's luck against a stable environment let's say that it's a random number generator where the numbers are being corrected perpetually right so it's like it's not just like running the lottery over and over again from scratch it's like you're pressing the lottery button and then all the numbers that are right get kept and then you run it again it's almost like the way some people play wordle it's like they, they play a word and they, they see where the letters are. And then their next guess, it keeps those letters the same. That's evolution. So you wanted to know how humans became meat eaters. Here's something to start with. Our ancestors, based on what we know from the fossil record, and, what, and when I say our ancestors, I mean 5 million years ago, our ancestors, based on what we know from the fossil record and based on us using kind of the the molecular clock to pinpoint when we diverged from chimps. We believe that our closest living relatives are chimpanzees and bonobos based on genetic evidence. And then using the fossil record and molecular evidence, we believe that this, hap- that this divergence of us happened between five and seven million years ago. So at that time, that creature, we think they were more like chimpanzees right than modern day humans and and that's a fair guess for a lot of reasons that i could talk about but it would take a while so let's just keep things moving here chimpanzees modern chimpanzees the males will occasionally form groups and hunt for meat they will hunt cooperatively kill animals right and eat them some groups of chimpanzees will make spears and this is actually the females in this one group which is kind of peculiar will make spears and stab monkeys and then eat them. So this behavior, we, and we see very similar behaviors in, like, in humans, obviously, this behavior of hunting and eating meat, it goes way back. It, go, it, goes, it goes 5 million years ago and beyond. We just do it more. We just do it more. We do it more complexly. We do it better. And by better as a vegan, I mean worse. But chimpanzees are primarily jungle-dwelling animals, and humans, it seems, um, evolved to be, let's say, I, I mean, the savanna theory is, is, is a little uh, imprecise, but let's, let's stick with it for now. We evolved for more open areas. So less tree-climbing ability, more upright running-around ability, but also different food sources. And what we see is that um, in an area like the savanna, right, we have tons of large grazing animals, and we don't have a lot of fruit trees. So what are you going to eat? There's different theories as to how this came about. Um, there's really two mainline theories. One of them is that we essentially went from hunting small animals in the forest to hunting big animals on the savanna and essentially just got better, used better tools, got a little more athletic and started killing bigger creatures and then eating them more and relying on them more. And then the other theory, which is quite popular and actually in recent, like very recent anthropology has become more popular due to a sub theory, which is percussive scavenging, which I could also talk about, but it's not necessary. Another group, um, another group of anthropologists believes that we transitioned from scavenging um, to hunting large animals. So essentially we were out in the savanna and then we were competing with hyenas and things like that over food. So it's random generation of different 
traits, right? Of different sub traits and things like that. And then non-random selection on those traits. So it's like you take a group of chimpanzees. Let's just really dumb this down. You take a group of chimpanzees, you put them on the savanna where there's less herbivorous eating opportunities and more carnivorous eating opportunities. And they already have a kind of carnivorous suite. They can already do a lot of the things they would need to do. And they just start hunting more. And then they're selected for different traits that are more advantageous in hunting until you have an animal that has all kinds of cool adaptations, um, such as the ability to throw things really fast um, or the ability to run quite slowly, but for very long periods of time. Um, endurance running, things like this, that really help when you're hunting large game. I hope I've explained this in a coherent way. It's interesting. I, I mean, the picture that you're painting of evolution in my, of evolution in my mind is a lot like a, a Russian roulette. That you know, it's the genetic, the genes, the DNA of each iteration spins the the shaft of the gun. Uh, the gun, the the bullet being death, or but the bullet being the annihilation of that species, and so it's not successful, so it doesn't reach the next point uh, on. It's a bit. I don't know if those who are listening have ever heard the Fermi, Fermi paradox about you know bigger evolution of of societies and all these yes. sort of yeah. barriers that societies hit when they don't make they don't they're not successful. And I think it's very. I'm seeing it in my mind very similar to that. That actually, as you say, from our perspective, looking back through time, it may seem intelligent but actually it is sort of more like something rolling down a hill a large object a large circular object rolling down a hill and if there is a a barrier being some kind of environmental change then the object stops and then the, the species no longer continues but if the adaptation is such that the species is able to avoid that barrier it will continue and will continue to survive but what's so peculiar about human beings is why do we look so different from our cousins we're completely hairless you know all the other species on earth like you mentioned the polar bears and the grizzly bears they actually look similar they're completely covered in hair obviously they're different colors yeah. but why are we so vastly different from our cousins like we're just we look like aliens in comparison to them I would say that we actually look quite similar. If you, if, if I gave you a skeleton, so I get the hair, let's talk about the hairlessness. Let's talk about the hairlessness in a second. But other than that, under the skin, if I <laughs> took you, yeah, if I took you into a museum and I said, here's, and people can look this up, right? I'm not, I'm not talking nonsense. Here's the skeleton of a baby gorilla. Here's the skeleton of a baby human. Here's the skeleton of a baby chimpanzee, which is which you might not be able to tell. Like you, like an anthropologist, a physical anthropologist would have no problem, but at least, and certainly at a glance, at a glance, you'd be like, they all just look like babies. Right. And this is, this is less true with adult skeletons because we have these, um, adaptations, but even like an adult chimpanzee skeleton, you'd be like, that looks a lot like a human. And then if you look up a picture of a shaved chimpanzee, you'll see an animal that looks, you're like, oh my God, the muscles, it's all like very, very similar. And then even before we had genetic testing, and I think this speaks volumes to how similar we are. Even before we had genetic testing, we knew that humans were primates. Darwin himself was categorizing us among the primates. They were like, yeah, it looks like all the other animals look a little different, but these primate animals, they look a lot like us, right? So I'd push back a little on us looking like aliens. I also think that species have a, and sorry, I'm pushing back quite a bit. I'm being a very annoying guest, but uh, it, it's, it's all in good faith. I think that also species have evolved, you know, we've evolved a very distinct capacity 
Well, I don't know if we have, but I think that we've evolved the capacity to delineate our species from others. I think that that's, that's very useful. And so we're sensitive to like, this is a human, this is not a human. And we definitely have this with like, um, some people say like, oh, all humans look so different than like all bears look the same or something like that, right? But then we actually look at it and it's like, well, the morphological variation in humans isn't that much higher than the morphological variation within other species. It's just that we're more sensitive to those differences. Like geese, for example, you ever see like a huge flock of geese, all of them look the same to you, but all of them are able to find who their mate is, their, their monogamous animal. So all of them can recognize each other. They're like, that's my mate. That's not my mate. They can recognize each other. They just look the same to us because we didn't evolve the ability to discriminate between um, individual geese. On the hairlessness point, we just spoke about the transition from the jungle, the forest, where our apish or more ape, we are apes, but our more traditionally apish ancestors lived. We moved to the savannah. It's a little hotter when there's no tree shade wearing a massive fur coat perpetually isn't a great idea and so hairlessness is thought to be a cooling adaptation um, to allow us to survive in this new environment to allow us to cool down suddenly and then there's some strategy as to where we have hair where do we have hair we have hair on top of our head this is where the most sunlight is hitting so we have shade we have a cover um, where the most sunlight is hitting, and then we're bald everywhere else where we would want to be, where we would want to be cooled down. Aside from some places that um, capture scent and allow us to sexually signal, there are some other theories um, of human ha- hairlessness, but I think I think that one really does take the cake. Is that we, you know, we left the forest, and so we needed to cool down really quickly because it was sudden environmental change. We couldn't evolve the usual things, and so we evolved a suite of cooling adaptations. One of them was hairlessness. Uh, we also evolved much, like really overdeveloped ability to sweat and things like that um, to kind of take a um, jungle dwelling animal and turn them into a more savanna or more open territory animal really, really quickly because it could, because it did actually happen quite quickly. So that's the hairlessness. It does look funny, but it, it does. But it's it's easy to see and it's easy to stand back f- from the perspective of the future and look back across species and and going back to my point about what feels like there's some level of intelligence there there's an awareness like not a kind of human consciousness but it's almost as if again getting all esoteric it, you know it can feel like that it can feel that there's this sort of intelligence of not intelligence of a of a like a like an animal intelligence more kind of the nature when we talk um and see examples of like the fibonacci sequence in plants and animals where you see these patterns these beautiful patterns emerging people often ask me like you know if there is no intelligence in the universe and how do you explain these beautiful patterns these repeating patterns that emerge and that's what's so interesting about nature and genetics and you know the environment it seems intelligent it seems smart but also scientists are telling us that it's just as such as yourself that it's just happy accidents or luck and then you know we could obviously dive into the nature of consciousness which i wanted to but i think we're out of time and i'd love to do a part two with you about consciousness and conscious awareness and behavior because obviously we could talk for another hour and a half about that but i think we'll 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 wrap it up there but before i let you go uh, i always ask my guest this final question if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig you're obviously not going to kill the pig because you've done that before and you wouldn't do it again (laughs) you're a vegan I would give you one vegan dish, one music album, or one music artist, and uh, one book. What would you take with you? Oh my gosh, one book! I see that's the only one I'm stuck on. Um, the vegan dish that's going to disappear pretty quickly. I'm eating that. I have no self control. I'm eating that in one yo in the first hour. I guess it's going to be my last meal. 
What would your last meal be? Let's make it. Let's make it. Let's make it a curry. Let's do like an aloo gobi. That'd be nice. Um, little cauliflower curry. That'd be good. I'll take. I'll take the. I'll take the book I'm reading um, right now, um, just so I can finish it. It's called Blueprint. It's about genetics. I mean, what else am I gonna do? Yeah, I'll, I'll have a meal really quickly. Read the last forty pages of this book, <laughs> and then die. Yeah. Well, and what was what would be the music that would play out your final days? Let's do something fun. Let's have Cardi B out there. <laughs> Amazing, Mr. Mac and Murphy. Thank you for being on the PBN podcast. It's fascinating. I feel we've got another twelve episodes with you because there's so much knowledge in that amazing brain of yours. But it's been <laughs> thrilling and fascinating, and uh, and uh, look forward to uh, chatting to you in the future. Thank you so much for having me on. That was a blast, and happy to come back whenever. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more food, fashion, animals, and everything in between. 